somehow I ran through a cobweb. I don't know where or how. Is there a cobweb like floating out here somewhere? Don't you hate that? I mean, oh my gosh. Oh, Jenny missed us some cobwebs. <laughs> See what happens, Carolyn? You take a couple of weeks off. <laughs> oh my goodness. No. no, it happens all the time. It happens in my house. I go into the storage room and I come out and I feel like something's crawling on me. I have a thing about spiders, just so you know. And if you ever play a practical joke on me about that, I will die. It's my mother's fault completely. I will blame her. She had a complete phobia of spiders and passed it along to me. All right. So we are in Matthew chapter 9 this morning. So as we continue to work our way through the gospel of Matthew, I trust that uh, you will be reading. Uh, you know, this is a great time just to you know go in and through the week, maybe once or twice, just you know, look at where we are, read, just let the Lord speak to you, prepare your heart, plow the soil of your heart, and, and get you ready for what's uh, coming as we come up to uh, Sundays and continue our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. So today we are in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. So let's begin reading and see what the Lord has for us here. So he, that is Jesus, got into a boat crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, they uh, brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitudes saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. Then as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And so it was as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. 
The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. May our Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Father, thank you for your word and may it touch our hearts and may you make it uh, very obvious, very clear to us today, the things that you have for each of us. As we've come here, Lord, uh, always with either full hearts or needy hearts, and wherever we fall on that spectrum, Lord, we know that you have something for us. So we are here, we are ready, and speak for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we enter this section, you know, there are, as we go through the Gospels, there are almost always parallel passages in the other Gospels. So the passage we're looking at today here in Matthew 9 is mirrored over in Mark chapter 2, as well as in Luke chapter 5. And as we read uh, Mark's account, uh, that we find out that this is the situation here in the first eight verses of this paralytic, where uh, they came and the house was full where Jesus was teaching, and they were unable to get a paralytic to him that they had brought to be healed. And Again, Mark's gospel, as well as Luke, tell us that this is the situation where they had to go up to the roof and tear a hole in the roof. In Mark chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, then they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And then we find out that... um, In uh, Luke's account, in Luke chapter 5, it says that, uh, verse 17, uh, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. So as we enter this passage here in uh, Matthew chapter 9, putting it together with the account of the other gospels, we find out that really This was kind of an electric environment, an atmosphere that was just filled with anticipation that something was going to happen. And we find in the, you know, just thinking about the previous day, you know, what happened, Jesus had uh, taught the Sermon on the Mount, and then at the end of the day, as he had healed some people, people came to him wanting uh, him to do something for them, and Jesus, of course, healed them, and he healed well into the night, and then they got into the boat and crossed over the northern part of Lake Galilee from uh, the northwestern shore where Capernaum was over to the cliffs of the Gadarenes. And as they got there, and we looked at this last week, there was the demoniac or the two demoniac men who met Jesus when they got out of the boat. And as they got there, remember, um, they had just come across the sea. There was a crazy storm. The disciples thought they were going to die. Jesus got up and rebuked their faith, and then he rebuked the storm. And as they got out of that boat, when sunrise, no doubt, had happened the next day, they encountered these demoniac men uh, where legion had possessed, and we were told primarily of one of those men. And so Jesus has already been demonstrating just in the past couple of days his amazing, incredible power to teach the Word of God. And all of the gospel accounts say this, but especially Mark, that they were always marveling at the authority that he spoke with authority, not as one who was just a teacher, because it was customary 
that the scribes and the Pharisees spent their time only quoting other teachers. There was no clear teaching or exposition of God's word. There was only them getting up and essentially creating or crafting speeches where they quoted other people to sort of justify their positions. But Jesus was bringing to them the word of God. Jesus was teaching them clearly what God's heart was behind the scriptures. And of course, he could do so with great power and great clarity because he was the son of God. And so the Lord had shown himself powerful over sickness and over storms, but what could he really do about sin? You see, this is the first time as we come into Matthew chapter 9 that we're finding out that he speaks to the issue of sin in people's lives directly. So he got in a boat and crossed over and came to his own city. So it would seem, as we you know, kind of zoom out and think about what Jesus is doing, if we were to plot this on a map, right, and we were kind of mapping it out and then, you know, draw the line, he goes here and then he goes here and then he goes there and he goes there. Jesus had a divine appointment, didn't he? We know this from the story of John chapter 4 when Jesus was going uh, to Jerusalem and he said, we need to go through Samaria. And they said, no, 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 Jews don't go through Samaria, Lord, don't you know this? And he said, no, 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 I have an appointment in Samaria. And of course, that was the woman at the well. So it would seem that Jesus, after this long day of teaching and healing and all of those things, they got in the boat, they went over to the eastern shore of Galilee went up to the Gadarenes, had this interaction with the, the legion of demons, and then got right back in the boat and went right back to the same place that they had just come from. So when you think of that, as you just kind of think about the amount of effort involved, and it was five to seven miles across the lake on a boat, uh, in a boat that was probably designed to handle just a few men, now you've got 13 men crowded in this boat. Why would you get in and go across in a crazy storm encounter Satan's demons and then come back and start all over again. But yet this is what Jesus does, isn't it? Jesus came to minister to people. He's going to emphasize that to us this morning. So here in verse 2, as he came to his own city, then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. So as this situation has taken place, we are told that these people, especially the teachers, the scribes, they had come from all over. That's what we just read a few moments ago in Luke's gospel. So this place was electric with expectation. And as Jesus was there teaching, we're told in Mark's gospel, he's in the middle of his teaching, whatever he's teaching, whatever he's saying, and everyone is held spellbound and captive by the words of the Lord. And in the middle of his sermon, all of a sudden, debris begins to fall from the ceiling. And he looks up, and people are literally tearing the roof away. Now, in that culture, of course, they had sort of a thatched roofs where they would use branches and, and uh, palm leaves and all sorts of things to layer on their roof and then cover it over with mud and then more branches and leaves and cover it with mud. So they were able to, with their own hands break through the roof. You know, in our modern day homes, you couldn't do something like that. You'd need power tools to break through. But in this situation here, here they are. Jesus' amazing sermon, his Bible studies being interrupted by people who are desperate, who want to be healed, who want to know the Lord. 
And so we are told that they tore the roof open, a hole big enough basically to get a single-sized bed down through the roof, a little makeshift cot, and they lowered this man down. And so it was already packed, so somehow they had to create space to allow this, this, this pallet with a man on it to come down through the roof and land in the middle of the, the room where Jesus is. And we are told in the other Gospels that Jesus saw the faith of these men. Now, although it's not mentioned here, I, I don't want you to miss that this morning. This man, as we understand it, as we're told by looking at the other Gospels, it would seem that this man, this paralytic, this paralyzed man, had no faith. That he was discouraged, probably depressed. He couldn't do anything. If, if anything happened to him, somebody had to take care of him. You know, I think about our daughter, Rebecca. You know, we, we have all these modern conveniences. We have a, a Hoyer lift to get her up out of her bed and into her chair and get her into the tub. And we have a modern day Depends that we can use with her and all of those things. But this man had to have people who cared for him 24-7. They had none of that stuff. They didn't have a, a, you know, a budget from the federal government that was supporting the disabled people where every month he got supplies like we get. He had nothing. He had just these friends, and these friends were so desperate for this man. And they heard about Jesus, as so many people had. And they came and they brought this man to Jesus, and Jesus saw the faith of the four friends. And we are told in the other Gospels that it was indeed the faith of those four friends that got that man to Jesus. Yes, they had to physically move him, but what motivated their physical action was their faith. It was their spiritual action that motivated them to physical action. So this man has now been dropped into the room, into the very presence of Jesus, Matthew 9, 2, and when Jesus saw their faith, Whose faith? The faith of those four men. There were five men, but four had faith. And let me make the point this morning that there is a gift of faith. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes God has given me and he will give to people the ability to believe things for God, big things. He will give people the ability to believe on behalf of another person, not to salvation, but just to, to see them healed or to see something change to, to radically happen in that person's life. I'm so grateful for the video we showed um, for you moms because of the issue of prodigals. That's one of the categories that we often forget about, that we have kids who, you know, we've raised them. We've raised them according to the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Maybe we dedicated them when they were a baby. Maybe we prayed for them in church. And maybe we sort of took an oath with our faith community to say, you know, we're going to covenant together that we're going to, in the faith community, raise our kids and, you know, send them to Christian school or homeschool them or whatever. And you know, read scripture to them and read bedtime stories and pray for them and do all those things. But then as they come of age, when they don't follow the Lord, you know, they have to come to their own faith. They have to come to that place in their lives where they put their hope and their trust in the Lord. Your kids cannot be saved by your faith. They have to have their own faith. And so we, we pray for that. And perhaps, as far as we know, 
uh, this man just, he didn't have faith. Maybe he was discouraged. Perhaps he was a prodigal. And so Jesus sees the faith of these four men, and he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, wait a minute. I'm one of the four guys, right? I had faith to bring this man to Jesus, my friend. And Jesus is saying, hey, your sins are forgiven. I'm like, wait a minute. No, I brought you here because he needs to be healed. He's stuck in that bed on that pallet. He's in misery. He's in agony. Lord, do something for him. Great, fine. That, that's cool about the sin thing. But heal him. <clears throat> and we know that Jesus dealt with the sin problem first because this is always the greatest need, isn't it? You see, we come thinking, Lord, the greatest need is I need money or I need healing or whatever the problem is that's in front of me. Lord, this is what I need. But you know what the Lord always wants to do? And we see it over and over and over in the scriptures. He wants to deal with the root of the problem. He wants to deal with the spiritual issue. You see, we're stuck in this physical world. And too often we are a slave to physical things. But the biggest issue is the issue of the heart, the issue of the spiritual need. And so Jesus addresses the man's biggest need, which is his salvation. He said, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, when Jesus said, be of good cheer, or in other translations, other versions, take heart, it means literally to take courage or to cheer up. Now, saying to a paralyzed person, or to a person who's in agony, hey, cheer up. Does that seem a little lame to you? Not to Jesus, right? You see, Jesus is claiming divine authority over this man's life. And more than the healing of his body, his soul needed to be healed. And as Jesus said this to the man, certainly he said it to the man for the man's benefit. Because he was the one who needed to have his sins forgiven. And there are some who infer, and it's perhaps true, that this man was in the condition he was in because of his sin. We aren't given the background. We don't know. But certainly for the man himself to hear God speaking to him, although most people at that point had not believed that Jesus was God. But to hear the voice of God saying, your, your sins are forgiven you. I mean, I wonder today if there's anyone who needs to hear that. To hear the voice of Jesus saying, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven you. Maybe you're just in a place where you've been caught up in a cycle of sin. Maybe you have besetting sin, as it is called in the book of Hebrews, that has been hindering your walk. Maybe you need to be reminded this morning that by the blood of Christ, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus deals with this man's most real and desperate and intimate need, which is forgiveness. But remember, there's people present. There's religious teachers present. And as Jesus is speaking this, we're told in the other Gospels, they began to say in themselves within their own hearts, who is this man? What is he saying? Is it, he can't say these things. Only God can forgive sins. Who is he anyway? And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes because for a man to say what Jesus said, he would have to make himself out to be God. And of course, that is exactly what Jesus was doing. 
You see, he didn't stand up and say, behold, I am God. But he looked at the man and he said, behold, son, your sins are forgiven you. Be of good cheer. Take courage. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, having spoken those words to this man, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? Well, the obvious answer is, I can say to anyone, or Jesus could say to anyone, hey, your sins are forgiven, but you and I can't see that, can we? We can't see the evidence necessarily of the forgiveness of sins being applied to that person's heart. So Jesus could have been a false teacher. He could just be saying crazy things. Or he could be the Lord of the universe. He could be God incarnate. And so he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or arise and walk? Obviously, the harder thing would be to say arise and walk. These things do not just happen. These are not common everyday occurrences. And it's interesting, in Psalm 103, I believe Jesus is prophetically enacting or carrying out Psalm 103 here. I'll read it to you. It's a psalm of David. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. And I believe that Jesus probably had that verse in mind as he, the Lord, is forgiving the iniquities and healing the diseases. So he's going to do both. But just as the order is indicated in Psalm 103, verse 3, He forgives your iniquities, and then he heals your diseases. Jesus here is forgiving this man's iniquities. He's forgiving his sins, and he's about to heal his diseases. In verse 6 of Matthew 9, he says to them, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. So Jesus is now saying this to everybody who's listening and watching. And then it says, then he said to the paralytic, so you get in your mind here, now he turns back to this man who's laying on the floor on his makeshift bed, and he says, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. I mean, I imagine when that guy got up and somehow he sort of rolled his his little bed up and His four friends are standing there with their jaw on the floor. And everybody who's crowded around that house and on the roof, looking down through the hole and looking in through the windows, they're all there going, oh my God, what just happened? Because they saw the man brought in. They saw the hole ripped in the roof. They they saw him drop down on that, that little bed. Chances are they probably knew who he was. These were small villages, small towns. And Jesus said that you may know that the Son of Man, authenticating who he was, has the power on earth to forgive sins. Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. This man getting up doing this, I'm sure they were just like, oh, what just happened? And as this man began to walk out the door, I imagine it was like the parting of the Red Sea, right? People were like, oh my gosh, go ahead, let me get out of your way here. And so this happened. The faith of the friends. Do you have faith for some of your friends, for your prodigal? 
Keep bringing them to the Lord. Don't give up. Don't give up hope. Be a person of faith. So this man arose. He departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and they glorified God. You see, that's what happens when something that's truly a miracle of God happens. People marvel and they glorify God who had given such power to men. You see, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Jewish people would have preferred a much more spectacular sign like calling down fire from heaven upon a Roman legion because they were being oppressed, of course, by Rome. But for Jesus to show up, and rather than doing that, which would have sort of validated that he was the political Messiah they were looking for, instead, he heals sicknesses. He touches people's lives. He prays for people. He, he heals their blindness. He heals their broken heart. For generations, the Lord had been dealing with the wayward heart of his people. And so the Lord sent his son to be the embodiment of love, to be the one who would bring forgiveness, who would become the hands and the feet and the face of God to people. And he took the scriptures and he brought them to life. He healed diseases. He forgave sins. One commentator said there are six reasons why Jesus dealt with this man's sin first before he brought healing to his life. He said, number one, because sin is the root from which all our evils come. Everything in our lives that's not of the Lord is from sin. Number two, to show that forgiveness is more important than bodily healing. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is more important than bodily healing. Number three, to show that the most important thing Jesus came to do was to deal with our sin. That is the primary reason he came. Next, to show that when a man's sins are forgiven, he becomes a child of God. Next, to show that the response to faith is the forgiveness of sin. See, the true faith response is that God extends forgiveness and healing to our soul, which is far more important, as we said, than bodily healing. And then lastly, he also did it as a witness to others, and in this case, to begin an important conversation with the scribes and the Pharisees, because he's about to say something in a few verses that's going to rock their world and that will shock them. So Jesus now continues on from this situation. Now, what do you do? You just kind of you healed this guy, everybody's standing around, and you're just like, okay, well, the meeting's over, let's go. And that's what happened as far as we know. So Jesus is now moving on to the next thing. And we're told that he calls Matthew, as we see in verse 9, Jesus uh, passed on from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax office. And he said to Matthew, follow me. So Matthew arose and followed him. So again, as we read in uh, Mark chapter 2 and in Luke's account in, in Luke chapter 5, we find out that Jesus went to Matthew's house. Matthew was also known by the name of Levi. And it says in Luke's account, then Levi gave Jesus a great feast in his own house. So as we read here in Matthew's account, it says, now it happened in verse 10, 
As Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So now let's think for a moment about Jesus calling Matthew and saying to him what he said to the other disciples up to this point. He walked by, saw Matthew, they made eye contact, and he simply spoke to Matthew and said, follow me. Now here's what you may not understand about Matthew as a tax collector. Uh, The Jewish people considered tax collectors to be extortioners because they were allowed to keep whatever they over-collected. A tax collector bid, among others, for the tax-collecting contract. For example, many tax collectors might want to have the tax contract for a city like Capernaum, because Capernaum was a gateway city from the the area of Galilee out to other regions, so it was a highly trafficked area. The man collected taxes, paid the Romans whatever he promised and what they demanded, and then he kept whatever he could extort from the people for his own money. There was therefore a lot of incentive for tax collectors to overcharge and cheat in any way that they could. It was pure profit for them. So here's the situation. The tax collectors were Jews, and they were extorting their own people. So the people looked at the tax collectors as traitors, as turncoats, because they had, in a, sort, in a sense, formed an alliance with Rome. So when a Jew entered the customs service, he was regarded as an outcast from society. He was disqualified as a judge or a witness in a court. He was excommunicated from the synagogue, and in the eyes of the community, he was, he was disgraced completely, and his disgrace extended to his family. So this man, Matthew, when Jesus said, follow me, you see, it came at great cost to Matthew. Matthew was already hated and despised by his own people. But here's something that you might miss when Matthew was called to follow Jesus. Matthew was a wealthy man. And he got his wealth by preying on his own people, by extorting and stealing from them. So Matthew was a man of means. So as Jesus called him to follow, Matthew was walking away literally from a pile of money. Matthew was walking away from a huge bank account. And as he arose and followed him, which he did immediately notice, all the gospel accounts say he just got up and left. Now, he could have gotten in great trouble with the, the Roman guards who were there to protect him because the Rome was there to protect their interest. So for him to just get up and walk away was not only a personal cost to him, but it cost him at that point his career. He walked away from his job. He left his career. You see, he was never going to be allowed to go back. And so this decision to follow Jesus by Matthew was not only intentional, but it was costly. And it was not only costly, but it was deliberate. And Matthew knew what the cost was. Matthew counted the cost. And so for you and me, when we hear that voice of Jesus calling us to follow him as his son or daughter, understand that like Matthew, we are covenanting with God to leave the old life behind. I'm not saying we walk away from our bank accounts and leave our jobs. But like we've already said, as we've been working our way through the gospel of Matthew, there is a cost to following Jesus. You know, we can't follow Jesus and now have one foot in the world 
and one foot in the spiritual kingdom and keep vacillating back and forth between those two worlds. You know, Jesus calls us to follow him. So now it would seem that Matthew called this banquet in his house to celebrate following Jesus. So right away, there's an element of faith going on in Matthew's heart and his mind. So he's, he's called all of his friends, his fellow tax collectors and other people who he fellowshiped with you know, from the outcast perspective. So these were not your everyday uh, Jewish friends. These were all the people who were also outcasts like he was. So he called this feast in his house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, when they saw what happened, that Jesus called Matthew, that Matthew invited all his friends, and then a whole bunch of other people came, likely prostitutes and all sorts of sinners, whatever fell under that category in their world. The Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, probably because they couldn't get to Jesus. So why does your teacher, you see there's a little bit of an element of intimidation here, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, okay, those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. Now they had to know that Jesus was speaking of them. Because here's the situation. The people who know they're sick, like the paralytic man, or at least like the paralytic man's friends, or like the Roman centurion, as we read about, or like the little girl, or the woman with the issue of blood, which we'll get to shortly. People who are sick seek the Lord. They seek a solution. They seek help. But those who are well, as Jesus says, have no need of a physician. You see, when everything's going well in our lives. Tell me this isn't true. Everything's great. We're cruising along. We're firing on all eight cylinders. Money's coming in. Life is good. There's no problems. Nothing's breaking. No pipes burst this week. My car didn't die. I didn't have a flat tire on the way to work. When everything's going great, are we walking in faith and trusting the Lord? Usually not. We get lax. We get uh, unfocused. But the people who are sick, the people who have problems, the people who are dying, we have nowhere to go but to the Lord, right? We're looking for the Lord. So Jesus says those who are well, a.k.a. you Pharisees, you think you've got it all figured out, you, you know the scriptures, you can quote them, you fast every, you know, twice a week, you have all of, everything's down, you tithe your mint, your cumin, your dill, you have everything, the law so memorized that every time you come across something, you wait, wait a minute, I got to take these three grains of mustard seed and lay them aside because that's what the law says. And that's the kind of thing that they're doing. He says, well, you don't feel like you need a physician because you think you've got it all figured out. You're doing it according to the flesh. You're doing it according to the law. You believe you're keeping the law. And he says, but go and learn if you're really that educated, if you're that well off, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, Jesus is quoting from Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 says, For I desire mercy 
and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Jesus wants them to understand that the law, that the word of God was always about desire and longing and the inward person, a change on the inside. Unless offered in the context of obedience, sacrifices were meaningless and even offensive to God. And Jesus is throwing this in their face. He's saying, you've got this all figured out. You go to the temple every day at the certain hours to pray. You go and you make your sacrifices. You know when you sin exactly what offering has to be given. And you go and you, you make your turtle dove or whatever it is. And you, you make your offering. And when Yom Kippur comes every year, when the Passover comes, you go and you make your sacrifices, and you do it all exactly right, and everything is perfect, everything is kosher. But Jesus is saying, you're missing something. And it's called heart. It's called forgiveness. It's called the inner man. You're just happily going along, turning the crank, and going through the motions, but there is nothing real in your relationship with God. And that's what Jesus is calling out here when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You see, true faith expresses itself in life. We can see faith in action. James devotes a lot of time in his epistle to this, doesn't he? He says, you show me your faith and I'll show you my action. That true faith always is, is an active faith. You see, we somehow as sinful people have this idea that I can have a passive faith. But that's not possible for a person who's truly born again, who's truly come to faith in Christ. For a person for whom the light of God has come into my darkness and eradicated my darkness, and my sin has been wiped away, and my dead spirit is now alive because the Holy Spirit is within me. Because that's happened, it is impossible, I submit to you, to be a person who has a passive faith. If that's the case, then we are quenching the spirit. We are carnal. We are walking in the flesh. But he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, the idea here behind this, if Jesus were to show up on the scene today, as he did then in the first century, and as Jesus went into the synagogues and the temples, Let's just imagine today Jesus walking into many churches, many houses of worship as we know them today, who have the name Christ on the, or Lord or whatever in our title, and Jesus comes in. When he walks in, does he find faith? Does he find people who are spiritually alive? Or does he find people who are, in a sense, dead? Our faith is dead. There's nothing active. We're not praying. We're not seeking the Lord. There's nothing real to our service. There has to be some evidence of the life of God within us. And then he continues sort of dealing with this because now as Jesus is dealing with these guys and he said to them what he said, it would seem that the disciples of John show up next in line and they have a question in verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, uh, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples aren't fasting, Jesus? What's going on here? Okay, we're working really hard here to keep the law. We're working really hard to keep up appearances. We are fasting twice a week and even more so. And we're doing all these things, but your disciples, 
You know, we're following John. John's kind of like related to you, right? He's your cousin. He's somehow related to you in your mission. And we're doing this, but your disciples aren't. What, what gives, Jesus? How come you aren't keeping up appearances? Why aren't your disciples being discipled the way we're discipled? And why aren't we, they being taught to observe the law the way we're being taught to observe the law? Jesus says in verse 15, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Wait a minute. What do you mean bridegroom? They all understood what that meant. In the Jewish wedding ceremony, when a couple was betrothed, they were with anticipation looking forward to the day that the bridegroom would come for the bride. And when the bridegroom would come for the bride, then the feasting began. Then the wedding would happen. And then there would be at least seven days of feasting after the wedding to celebrate what had happened. And he says, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Jesus is implying He's the bridegroom, he's the Lord, he's the Messiah. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast, meaning Jesus will go away, his mission will be complete. He will be sent to the cross, he will be crucified. That day is coming. So this is a veiled reference to the crucifixion. And he's saying when that comes, when that day comes, when the bridegroom is removed, then they will fast and they will mourn. And then he gives them a couple of verses to illustrate the point. And he says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. So again, an illustration they understood. You have a, a favorite garment, a favorite pair of pants, a favorite shirt, whatever it might be, and it's got a rip in it, but you don't want to get rid of it because it's still good, so you... You take another piece of cloth and you sew on there to patch it up so you can continue to wear it or use it. But the mistake that is made is this thing's been washed a hundred times and this new piece of cloth that you took has never been washed. So you cut it out, you fit it over the tear, you sew it in place and you wear it and it's cool and then you wash it and then what happens? That fabric that's already acclimated, it's already shrunk, it's already worn, reacts with the new piece of cloth, the new piece of cloth, which has never been washed or never been, been handled in that way, it shrinks and it pulls away and it creates a tear. So what is he saying by taking this physical illustration? He's saying you can't patch up your life. You can't take human methods and human means and fix your heart. You, you can't take, if I may make a bold application, modern day psychology which is rooted in secular humanism, and fix the problems in your life as a Christian. It's not possible. Because you're taking the wisdom of man, and secular humanism, if you're not familiar with that, is all about the deification of man. It's that you were your own God. You create your own reality. You're the captain of your own ship, the master of your own destiny. And you just need a little help, a little tweak, a little tune-up from some guys named Freud and Jung, and the people who wrote what we consider modern-day psychology. Am I saying modern-day psychology is all bad and you throw it all out? There might be some good things in there. But modern-day psychology is not going to fix a spiritual problem. You can't fix a life that's broken by sin by rehabbing the soul. You see, a sinful, fallen human being cannot be rehabilitated. Do you realize, by the way, 
that our prison systems are all built on the concept of rehabilitation? Can a human being be rehabilitated through behavior modification? No, it takes a soul transformation. It takes a spiritual transformation. It's like Jesus spoke to uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You must be born again. There must be a transformation. So you can't patch up your life. You can't patch up a garment with a, an old garment with a new patch. For it tears away and the tear is made worse. But then he comes, same idea, same concept, verse 17. Nor do they put new wine into new wineskins. Excuse me, new wine into old wineskins. Or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, you can imagine, you know, because they didn't, they couldn't run down to Target or Walmart and get a new bottle when they broke something or when they needed a, a new a container. They had to take their, their skins, their wine skins, their skins and sew them up and make uh, wine skins. And when you pour new wine in, of course, it's in the process of fermenting. And because those skins are soft and supple, they move with the wine. And as the wine, the, the gassing takes place and it swells up like a bubble, like a balloon, if you will, it stretches and it moves. But over time, those wineskins, those pieces of leather, they dry out. And once they've dried out, they've gotten a little harder. They're not quite as soft and supple as they were in the beginning. So you wouldn't put new wine into old wineskins because then when that fermentation process begins, the process of changing and growing, if you will, it can't move, it can't flex, it can't grow. And so what happens is it breaks, it bursts, and then the skin itself is lost and the wine that you put in it is lost. So he takes again a very common illustration from their lives and he says, you can't patch up your life. In other words, I'm doing something new. I'm bringing to you new wine. I'm doing a new thing. As he said earlier, you know, I have come to those who are sick. I've come to bring the truth of God. I've come to bring the presence of God to people. I'm coming to do a new work. I'm coming to fulfill the word of God. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. You can't rehabilitate dead religion. You can't rehabilitate a life by human means. You see, Jesus came talking of God the way no one had ever heard. Jesus came doing things that no one had ever seen. Remember previously, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the leper, and there was a, a process for the priest. He says, go and show yourself to the priest. Now, the priests were not there every day seeing lepers come in, being cleansed from their leprosy. It almost never happened. It probably never happened until Jesus showed up. Jesus is doing something new. He's doing something great. He's doing something awesome. And that's the way it always is. When Jesus comes into my life, into your life, when the Spirit of God enters, a new thing happens. And we begin to change. We begin to grow. And, and as it should be, it must be that way. As we were talking about a moment ago, faith has brought 
something new into our lives. It's brought the person in the presence of Jesus. It's brought the person in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's now brought the Word of God, and the Word of God is contrary to everything we see in society. I was going to share with you some of the news things going on. I haven't done that for a while. There is absolute madness going on out in the world right now. This thing, the Equality Act that is coming our way, it is absolutely from the pit of hell, and it's on the verge of passing. And if it passes, what's going to happen? is every organization that is a church, that is a 501c3 organization, as it's classified by the government, is going to be required, emphasis on the word required, to hire someone who is LGBTQ. And you cannot, if you, you know, we don't have a staff, we don't have a budget for all that, but, you know, think about churches that have that. They have paid staff. Opening for a worship leader, we need to find a new worship leader. You have to consider and potentially hire someone of that persuasion. They're making it a federal law. And if you don't comply, they will revoke your 501c3 status and make you begin to pay taxes, and you'll get other fines and probably sued and, and perhaps have to be disbanded as a church because you haven't complied with the new federal law. This sounds exactly like what happened with Nehemiah and with Daniel where they were ordered to worship someone in something that was not the Lord. And you see, if we have this new wine, if we're born again by the Spirit of God and we're reading the Word of God and we're becoming transformed, we are going to be at enmity with the world because the Word says that the world is at enmity with God and this is why we can't have a foot in the world and a foot in the kingdom of God. You're either all in or you're all out. We cannot walk as lukewarm Christians. We cannot walk as an old wineskin into which new wine is poured. We cannot walk as an old garment with a new patch on it. You see, the bridegroom is here. The presence of Jesus, the saving work of the Lord Jesus has come to our world, to our lives. And if we as the church are saved, if this is all true of us, then we look different. We are different. And so today, are you a new wineskin or are you an old wineskin? Keith Green, many years ago, was a great singer-songwriter in the 70s, uh, ended up dying through a plane crash and most of us who lived through that felt that was, you know, unfortunate. Of course, the Lord took him home. But he wrote this song. I didn't think about this. I would have played it today. But, uh, you know, my faith is old. My, my eyes are dry. And the, po the point of his song was that I'm no longer able to cry tears of, of repentance, tears of joy, tears of gladness, because my faith is old. I've become like that old wineskin. And I hope and I pray that that's not where we are today, that we're too busy as the scribes and the Pharisees or the disciples of John fasting and keeping the law and dotting the I's and crossing the T's, but there's no real desire, there's no real heart. You see, this, this issue that Jesus has been dealing with here is he's been healing people and he's calling people to follow him. This is all about following Jesus and it's not a religion 
It's a relationship. It's a reality. It's truth. You see, if you're truly born again and the Spirit of God is within you, something has to be different. But someone has also once said, in comparing the Christian life to two dogs, being in a dog fight, and they say, well, which dog wins? And the answer is the one that I feed. You can feed the, the bad dog, the evil dog, or you can feed the good dog. And with that simple illustration, let me encourage you today, feed the good dog, feed the spirit, starve the flesh, follow the Lord, be a new wineskin, allow the Lord to fill you and to work in your life. This is what Jesus would have. This is what he was calling these Pharisees to. I hope and pray that there are no Pharisees among us today. I hope that I'm not blind and that I'm a Pharisee. We want the Lord to work in our lives, don't we? We want to be soft and supple in the hands of God. We want him until the day we die, just as we sang of that song, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Let that be the truth that echoes and rings. Write it on every wall, as we said, as we sang that bridge. You know, sing it in every room. Let our homes be the house of the Lord. Don't make the mistake of thinking that when you get up and come on Sunday morning to church that you went to church. You know, you're the church. Your home is the church. You're the church. Wherever you go, the church is. Take church with you every day, everywhere. And let's serve the Lord. Let's follow him. Amen. Lord, we love you this morning. Thank you for ministering to us and for speaking to us. And Lord, may we be like these men that you spoke to, that you called, like Matthew, like the disciples of John, as you've said, be like that new wineskin, be like um, that new vessel filled with wine. Lord, may the new wine of your love and of your work and your word, may it be real in us, Lord. And I just sense today you're just calling us back to your heart, you're calling us to a sense of genuineness, to following you. And Lord, we all need a little tune-up. We all need a little spiritual reminder that apart from you, we can do nothing. And that, Lord, we, we need you. We need you every day. We need you every hour. Lord, may you bless us. May you have your hand upon us and may we follow you. Lord, if there's something this morning we need to confess and just turn it over to you, then we do so right now. And if there, we're struggling with something, Lord, just... Lord, you know, you see, you hear, you understand. And so may you do that work in us. <clears throat> and Lord, as we uh, were talking earlier just about prodigals and that kind of thing, uh, I just want to pray this morning for those prodigals in our lives that we're aware of. Whether it be our own literal children or just people we're aware of who used to know you and walk with you, but they seem to have walked away. God, we pray for them this morning, even by name in our hearts. And we, we say, Lord, please, before you come, would you call them back to yourself? And may they respond. May they hear. May they have a soft heart and a tender ear. And may they turn to you before it's too late. Lord, meanwhile, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's uh, close with a song.